Happy Tag Tuesday. How are you? I'm Ann Police. And I'm Denise Cooper. And to say I'm Ann Police, as you say, how are you, is a it's a loaded question. Really? Well, I mean. Did you, you forget who you y- were? You know. I forgot where I was supposed to be this morning. Yes, you did. I <laughs> wasn't going to bring it up. But now that you have, we have had, there's not very often that we do early morning recordings. Mm, right. And this one specifically is a little hard for you because you're just getting home from paradise. Mm -hmm. And they've changed the flight schedule. I don't know why. Uh, Three days a week, the the flight that flies direct from Kauai to LAX leaves at 3 p.m. Usually it leaves at 1.30. Wow. So So two days a week, it leaves at 1.30. What time did you get in last night? Uh, 11.45. That's late into LA. Yeah, it is. And then we had Kyle came and picked us up. So we had to drive, you know, whatever. He of must course. have loved that. He actually did because the traffic was so oh. good. It took him literally 35 minutes to drive up to L.A. That might be worth it then from now on because whenever I come into L.A. and get picked up, mm-hmm. oh, I want to kill myself. Oh, traffic is the worst. And getting people into that airport? Yeah, it's bad. It's the worst airport in the world. I know. What's wrong with LALX? There's something really wrong. I don't know. But it's, you have to, it's a it's a necessary <clears throat> evil. It's terrible. I anyway. Anyway. You weren't here. I called you. I just was on my rem- way to get my hair done. Well, I called you because <laughs> we've had a, a, a part, this is, I called you because in the past we've had a little problem where there have been guests that showed up and you had been asleep still. I was? Yes. I've slept through guests? Well, you were late because you were still sleeping. Really? Yes. You don't remember? No. Okay, well, this just is as so an FYI, irresponsible. Just Whoever. as an FYI, I don't remember who it was, but <sighs> I've always, like, when it's early in the morning, I decided <laughs> I better, I told my husband, I better check on Anne. Anne. For real. And I, you answered the phone so that I was like, she's awake. Yay. She's on her way. She's on, literally, I thought you were on your way. Well, I was on my way somewhere, just not here. And I was kind of jealous of where you were going because when you're looking at me right now, when you said you were on your way to go get your hair blown out, I was like, oh, girl, mm, I need that. I need I need it, too. Obviously, our poor guest. Sorry. Sorry for the hair. <laughs> our guest got here early. Thank you. You got here late. Thank you. So he and I have been sharing a lot of stories. Yeah. Just really expressing some stuff. He is so great. <laughs> Let me introduce our please, guest. Please. Our guest is the one and only Peter Nielsen. Peter Nielsen. Peter has been on my list. I told him this, and it wasn't a lie, that mm-hmm. since the time we started this podcast, we made lists of people we wanted to interview. That's right. And Peter was one of them. That's right. So welcome Thank to the you. pod room. And what's even better about Peter is he got here a little early, and if he would have given me the extra 10 minutes, I could have maybe slapped some makeup on. Why? <laughs> Well, Peter needs to see us at our at our most basic. I think he, you both look fine. And and that's what I love about Peter. Number one, he's a good man for saying that. He's been married a long time. He really has. He knows how and to say it. Kathy has trained him well. <laughs> yep. He's learned well. So welcome to the show. First and foremost, when Anne and I talked about interviewing you recently, I said, what do you think about when you think about Peter? And both of us had the same 
response. And that was, we think of you as a Renaissance man. Wow. Okay. Really. No, truly. It really is what we both said. Yeah, and we were like, oh my gosh, we have to interview him because we're on so much on the same page. But you are. You're a man that I, when I think of having talents that are above and beyond or different than the norm, I think of you. Well, thank you. We were actually yeah. talking with um, our last, our previous guest, Lisa mm-hmm. Sanford, about, because we called her a Renaissance person. And she's like, I'm not sure what that means. What's that mean, you know? So in explaining it, I was really happy with our explanation because I think it describes a lot of people that we know, or I should say people that we're sort of drawn to. And it's someone who doesn't live within the nor- the confines of this is what's expected of you, so therefore you should live it kind of thing. And our friend Lisa is redoing a house. And it's like, well, that's that's boy's work. No, I'm going to do it because I'm interested in it. Yeah. Do you, given that description, do you kind of see yourself as a Renaissance man? You know, I've always had in me uh, just a desire or an urge or something to just that needs expressing Mm. and I just you know for a while when my like when my first daughter was born yeah our first daughter was born (laughs) I uh there's another one of you there's there's a second Kathy before she was born Kathy was asleep almost all the time when she was pregnant oh yeah and so I was just sitting there watching I don't know some kind of sports on tv or something yeah Kathy and I went down one time we were at a fabric store and I went I think I'm gonna make the baby a quilt Oh. So I figured out how to make a quilt. You've never quilted? Never had touched a sewing machine. So I just figured it out and I (laughs) bought a book and I made a quilt and then I started making a bunch of quilts and then I quilted for, I probably made 10 quilts, hand quilted and the whole thing. You're a quilter? Well, I was. Oh, okay. And then I kind of lost interest in that and I went on to other things and so it's always been something has interest me for a long time it was cooking and I really love to cook mm-hmm. um, you know and I just find that sort of that creative expression I love it cooking I started writing I can tell you about that a little bit later. yeah yeah I had no idea you were a quilter I yeah. know your wife's a huge quilter she is she I mean she is now and I help her sometimes with the piecing and stuff but I don't really, I don't do the the quilting takes so right. long it's right. a tedious job and the people who yeah. do it well are really good at it it you, was it was I enjoyed it because I would just sit there. My wife's asleep. I would just be watching professional wrestling or something on oh. TV. Oh. <laughs> and I'd be quilting away, sure. you know. That or... is so fun. <laughs> Very I... yin and yang. Yeah. Professional wrestling yeah, exactly. and quilting. <laughs> well, he's still a man. Well, I, yeah, exactly. But that's yeah. the thing that I do also love about him. And I don't want you to take this the wrong way. You're not a normal man. <laughs> and okay. when I say that, does that, does that sound... Bad? No, I think I'm Maybe not a normal stereo- man. <laughs> I don't think man. you're a normal man. That's exactly it. Yeah. I don't think you're a stereotypical man. So what have you done for a living, your adult life? Well, I um, graduated. I went to BYU and mm-hmm. I graduated and got out and worked in property management for a little while. And then I decided I didn't really enjoy that. So I went back to business school to the Claremont Graduate University and I got an MBA. And then I went to work as a banker and I've been a banker until I retired. When did you retire? Uh, about four years ago, three years ago. And has retirement been something that you looked forward to or? You know, I hadn't really thought about it. I always felt like, well, I would wake up, I'd look at these three little kids and I'd go, you know, I don't have an option. I've got to get to gotta work. Got to go. You know, yeah. and I just kept going to work and kept going to work. And then one day I kind of woke up and Kathy was, it was, actually what changed my mind is Kathy got sick. Yes. And I... We talked about her retiring, and she ended up retiring 
we got her through sort of the and whole process in the beginning of her being sick and and then we she retired and then I decided hey maybe maybe we can do this you know what I mean it was earlier than I was it kind of had thought about it okay. but, but I kind of put together the numbers and I went I think I think if we're a little bit careful we can do this what is retirement kind of look like for you absolutely fantastic you've been what traveling what have you been doing We've traveled we also volunteer down at a genealogy library and that's a big deal though that you, you say it's sort of off the cuff and matter of fact but in speaking to kathy about it that for people who might not know that you and kathy work at the genealogy research center in the city of orange right it's quite large and it's of it's manned and promoted by the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints yep um it's a calling from within the church yep you were called in and say hey would you like to volunteer yeah and it was a it was a soft pitch when they did it because they were right we know kathy's been sick we know you just retired yeah is this a can you do it? And we would look for a commitment for two years. Okay, so it was a two-year commitment. Yeah, and we we've been at it for a year and a half. So what? Oh, so you're kind of on that yeah, end of we're it. On the... When I talked to Kathy about it, she just did a, a, a hand motion that indicated down, get get now. We're on the slide. We're on the slide down. <laughs> when I first talked to Kathy about it, she was like, "We were thinking, uh, we'll when once we're into it, we'll probably spend six, ten hours a week at it." And it has been like three times that much. Yeah, it definitely has. <laughs> it's a part-time I, job. It's been extremely rewarding. Yes. Most of the volunteers are not members of the church. Mm-hmm. Most of the patrons that come in are not members of the church. That's what I wanted to make sure everyone understands. If you're interested at all in your family tree, in your genealogy, this is not a place that you have to worry about because of it's not religious affiliated. No. It's uh, affiliated, but it's not going to be a religious problem for you. It's not a religious... Well, I mean... it. In the greater sense of the word, religious experience, it, right. it can be. It's inspirational yes. and yes. all that, but it's not a, a situation where we're pushing any right. religion on anybody. So what is it that, just briefly, when people come in, what is it that you help them do? What are they looking for? Well, they really come in. They're all different levels of experience. Some have had no experience. They don't know even hardly what genealogy is. And others have been doing it for 30 years oh. and walk in with... All kinds oh, of research. Yeah. So we have volunteers of all different levels. Okay. And we'll find out what they want and we'll find someone that can help them. And they sit down and they look at, they'll, like, for example, if you were from, say, Mexico, yeah. you'd say, I know who my great grandfather's name is, but I don't know anything beyond that. Right. So then we'd look up the great grandfather, we'd find the city. Maybe we'll find a birth certificate or, yeah. a, or a marriage certificate. And that maybe that has the great grandfather's father's name on it. Sure. So then, and that's even happened to people. They walk in and say, I don't, I don't even know my grandparents. I've never. Yeah. So we'll do a little research. Whoops. We'll do a little research and find out. One time somebody came in and we found a picture of her grandfather. No. And pulled it up and, you know, everybody there, we all started crying. Yeah. Because she was so touched. She had never seen a picture of her grandfather. Oh. For those people who are not familiar with doing genealogical work and what the reward of it would be, describe, I mean, I've had that experience where you're connected to people you've never met because they're long since gone. What is it that is that, what is important about that connection? Why do we need that? Knowing how your family functions and knowing where you come from is one of the most grounding things Mm. that you can 
have in your life. Mm -hmm. You know, knowing that, well, I can do this because my great grandma, in my case, walked across the United States. Was she a pioneer, your great grandma? Yeah. Yeah. (gasps) And that's an incredible story. She she came, I mean, she immigrated from England and she was 10 years old with her family. Her mother died on the way in childbirth and she carried the baby at 10. Of course into the into salt lake where they ended up settling unbelievable so, yeah, those stories a, are unbelievable they are and i feel like every you know every i'd be at the bank my boss is yelling at me or something like that <laughs> and i'd think i hate this job yeah and then i'd go well i can do this if she can do that right i can do this and i would and i feel it right now i feel when i say that i feel some strength right. from somewhere maybe her i don't know but some strength coming into me i just feel like I can do it. I think that that's exactly it. The connection that we have with our past can really help us in our present and in the future. Yeah. And their DNA is somewhere in us. Right. Yeah. Part of me is her. We, the, the funny thing is we had a genealogist on here and she goes deep. I mean, she's one of these people that that's her profession. She gets paid to do that. And she was talking about, what is it, generational um, trauma, uh-huh. and that if you have great-grandpa, whatever, that served in World War II, that that is somehow, like, handed down. I've never heard it put that way. And, and you know, you know people that are like, well, you know he's an alcoholic because his dad was an alcoholic, <laughs> and his dad was an alcoholic. That type of, I'm being dramatic, of course. But there's that small bit of that person that then remains in your DNA, and I have thought about that probably more than I should. Right. Part of the, and I think a perfect example from my life, my family, my, um, there's a strain of anxiety that runs through yes. my family. Yes. And my grandfather is, I don't think people knew this. Maybe my dad did, but he didn't tell people because there was a little bit of uh, stigma stigma to, sure. to that. But my grandfather served in World War One, mm-hmm. and, you know, had, I've seen his gas mask that mm-hmm. he had. and. And I tried to get him to talk about the war a few times, and he would absolutely not do it. And he suffered from anxiety. He would have days where he just would, I'm not. PTSD, I'm sure. Yeah, I can't, I'm not coming out of the room today. I mean, I didn't live with him, but I knew that was true somehow. And then my dad has had some anxiety, and my brother has had some anxiety. And I think it's part of that. It's Mm -hmm. part this, I don't know if it all relates back to my grandfather, but, you know, I know there's, and I can recognize it in me sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I think that's true. There's this generational, whether they're tendencies that are in our makeup somehow or they're, you know, intergenerational, whatever trauma. you call it, trauma, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think that's very true. Christy, who we had on as the modern genealogist, she does forensic genealogy. Oh, cool. So she's she has cases that she's working on with big groups and things and when she was talking about it it motivated me to want to find out more so if somebody wants to go down to the genealogy center just show up find out the hours and show up and you will get help and you don't need to know anything about what you're doing we have people that are just sitting there waiting for Mm -hmm. people to show up i love that yeah so you're done with that uh calling with that job in six months Mid-March, yeah. Mid-March. Okay, so do you have... County. Right. March 20. No, no. I'm not counting. I don't know. It's been a great calling. Absolutely. Do you have plans for after that, or are you just going to... You're going to let it... I'm going to try to renaissance. You're going to (laughs) renaissance? Renaissance it up. I love it. Well, one of the things you were talking about is, number one, you have written a book. 
I did. And the, we have the book here, and he we he Give signed us the title. it. It's called "All That I've Seen: Failing Banks and Other Stories" right. by Peter Nielsen. It's a great read. And yeah. in your book, in um, the very first. Seven, on page 17 it says as I think about the times in Los Angeles I realize that I spent a lot of t- my, my time on the train or up on the 26th floor of that downtown building but that is not really where the true interests lie I've always said I do this banking for them that's right yeah that's that's uh, that's true and that was a that's an accurate uh, representation of that I really did get up every morning before the sun was way way before the sun was up because I wanted to be able to come home and get home by six, mm. which meant I had to leave my office downtown Los Angeles at about 4.30. Oh. Because I had to get from my office to the train station, then I had to wait for the train, then I'd get on the train, ride the train to Santa Ana, get off, find my car, oh, yeah. and then drive home. So, and I'd get home around, around between 5.30 and 6. And then I was there when the kids were there. And that was, was a faster way to get home than it would have been driving. Driving was, I Forget did driving it. for a couple of years and it was horrible. Forget it. Right? The beautiful thing about that is he made lemonade out of lemons. Sure. Because one of the things that you say is that because you were able to get on that train and, and you described in your book how everybody had their, their thing. You'd see people on their their devices. You'd see people reading the newspaper. You'd see people falling asleep, <laughs> drinking coffee, all of these things. You spent the time doing something different. Well, yeah, I at first I I slept <laughs> for real. <laughs> yes, and, you know it took me a long time to figure out maybe I can write a book. I didn't. I never set out in the beginning to write a book. When I when I was reading your book, I was like, how did he remember all of these things? <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, when I well, this all started about thirty years ago. I was hiking with a friend who is a writer. His name's Steve Cantwell. Uh-huh. He lives in Utah, and he's he was an English major in college, and he's professional. That's what he does for a living. He's a writer. Okay. And I didn't, I don't even think I knew this. I knew that he was an English major because I bumped into him a few times at school and stuff. And Anyway, we were um, hiking. We were hiking all day long in Zion. And, and I just kept telling him little stories of things that had happened to me. And, oh, let me tell you about this time when I was in Guatemala on my mission. And mm-hmm. this happened. And and he just listened. And he was, you know, oh, really? That? Oh, my gosh. You know, and we'd go back and forth. And then at the end of the day, he goes, you know, Peter, you really had to write these down. Yeah. And I said, uh, Steve, I'm not, I can't, I don't know how to write. I'm not a writer. I wasn't, you were an English major. I, <laughs> I wasn't an English major. Right. And he said, uh, it's not that hard. He said, just write the way you talk. And I went, just write the way I talk? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> and he goes, and don't worry about punctuation or anything. I'm like, don't even worry about staying in the margins of the page. Mm-hmm. Just keep writing. Don't edit yourself, just write. And I went, Oh, and he said, and remember this, what people connect to is the emotion in the story, not the facts. Sure. So try to, you know, tell them how you felt during the experience. So I I went home and, you know, a couple of months went by and I was at lunch one day and I had a piece of paper somehow and I thought, I'm going to write a story from something that happened. So I wrote it down and then the next day I did the same thing and Pretty soon I had a bunch of them and they were all terrible. <laughs> they really were. They were, They were. you know, I sent one of them to him and he said, oh, write more like you, write more like you talk, Peter, not like, he said, don't get, if you find yourself getting um, formal, it's usually that you're kind of hiding from something oh, in your writing. So yes. try to get, um, try to just be comfortable and loose just the way you talk. 
okay. So I just kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it. And then, then I started commuting to Los Angeles, and I, you know, and I would pick it up and drop it. And sure. But I have, I have boxes in my garage of old writings that are just sitting there and some of them are horrible to read. Anyway, by then I, I just started sitting down and I really started writing about one story. I think in my mind, oh, remember that story about that girl that I tried to put my arm around and I accidentally <laughs> punched her in the nose. Sure. No. Sure. Been there. And I, <laughs> you were the girl. I, yeah. I was the recipient. Yeah. Uh, and so then I think, oh, I'll just, I'm going to write that story. I'm not going to worry about ever publishing it. That's so far yeah. out of the, you know, my mindset. So I just would sit and type and, you know, and then sometimes I'd, sometimes I'd find myself chuckling. Other times I'd find myself <laughs> sad as I'm writing. Sure. It was, it was a real true emotional roller coaster to go back and write these stories. In fact, I, well. Yeah, it was just... It well, was, and you did that on the train. I did it on the train, yeah. That, that's how you Mostly. used your time. For, yeah, I would say 90% of the book I wrote on the train. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, now, and this is just... I'm not getting lost in the weeds or the detail. Laptop or handwritten? Laptop. Well, okay. both. Both. Yeah. Sometimes I didn't have my laptop, so I would just... And I find it easier to do it with my... my. I wasn't a very good typist, so... Mm. Well, and typing isn't writing. No. You know? I felt... I always felt better doing it by hand. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that was surprising to me as I did it was my thoughts were always faster than my hand. Yeah. So I'd find myself in my brain thinking like a paragraph ahead, and I'm still trying to remember as I'm going through the story in my brain what I, what did I say? thought about <laughs> that I'm still writing. Yeah, so, I'm so just, interesting. So it'd get all scribbly, and you know, I'm just kind of going as fast as I can. And it was, it was, it, it was totally at times completely absorbing. I was on an airplane once flying to Montreal for business, and mm -hmm. I didn't have a computer. Right. I just had a piece of paper, and I was writing about when my two-year mission in Guatemala ended, and my parents flew down to Guatemala to get me. Nice. And I remember I was writing in it, and I'm talking about I remember the color of my dad's tie, and I remember what dress my mom had on mm. in the airport. I'm watching them. Mm -hmm. I can't go up to them because they're, they have to clear customs. And I'm just watching, and I remember so much detail about that day and the airplane I was on hit a little turbulence and I went oh my gosh I'm on an airplane yeah you know what I mean it yeah. was I you was transformed yourself back to that place. I was so into it and I it was healing for me too because I had had some difficult experiences while I was on my mission sure. my mission was I think was one of the greatest adventures of my life but I had also had some really tough experiences that I didn't know how to make sense of. And by writing about them, I really came to realize, you know, that it was, that it, I didn't try to stop thinking about them, yes. which I had done for a long time. Right. I really sort of let them out and, you know, I, and I felt like there was real healing that went on. Through. Yeah. They yeah. say that when you, a lot of times the therapists will give you, those are the kinds of practices they want you to do which is write things down mm -hmm. write a letter to yourself write a letter to somebody that has wronged you or whatever you're dealing with because for some reason that process from brain to pen to paper makes a huge difference one of the things i remember when i was writing this somewhere in the middle of the many years when i was writing things down i remember 
waking up in the morning. I went out and got the newspaper. This is when we still had newspapers. <laughs> I got the Orange County Register and I opened it up and I was flipping through it. And I came to a page that said, I don't remember what the headline was, but it was a story about how if uh, service people that had had traumatic experiences and suffered from PTSD, if they could get them to write about mm. their traumatic experiences, their white blood cell count actually increased. Mm -hmm. So there was real, true healing. It wasn't right. just, I feel better now. It was something in your system was really healing. getting going and healing. Yeah. In your book, you say, when I write, I feel valuable and I feel important. I feel like I've amounted to something. I feel like I've amounted to more than just a worker ant on his daily commute. I feel like I have really lived. It's it's a part of this living that I want to share. Sometimes I would write those things. And I, I mean, it's not like I, like at work, I, I did a lot of technical writing, which is yes. was always boring to me. Very boring. Um, but when I did this, I would sit down and I would write something and I'd look at it afterwards and i go, wow, did I write that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Where did that come from? Right. Yeah. It I, came, just, I just wrote it. And, a lot of artists feel that way, I think. It is something almost outside themselves. I did sometimes feel that way. Yeah. The other thing that was cool is I learned to just follow where my mind would go while I was writing. Mm. So I would, I think, oh, I'm going to write that story about when I visited the Rosa Parks Museum mm -hmm. in Alabama mm -hmm. when I was working for the FDIC. And mm -hmm. I'd start writing and pretty soon I'd get completely sidetracked on the airplane flight to right. Alabama. Right. And I'm like going on and on and I'm like, what in the world? I got to get to the point. You know what I mean? Right. I'm going on and on and on. And pretty soon I get to the point where, you know, I had done it wrong and I have to go up and beg to get on the airplane. And I show them my badge that I'm with the FDIC and that I didn't know this at the time, but it has power to stop the flight and get you on it if you need to. Really? It Who could. knew the FDIC wielded such power on, well, a, I did, on I, the you flight? Probably need clearance and stuff. So. <laughs> but I, at the time I felt pretty powerful. Yeah. Um, but, and so I showed that to the lady and the travel agent, the government travel agent was talking to him. And pretty soon I saw a person get off the plane and un, and I got on the plane. <gasps> and I was the last seat on. And I and then I wrote the whole story and I read the Catholic. I go, sorry about this whole sidetrack on the airplane flight. She goes, Peter, you did exactly what the story about Rosa Parks is about. Oh. You're the, and I'm like, oh, I had no, I hadn't. Literally, even after I wrote it, I had no idea that that had anything to do with the story. Ew. It was amazing. <laughs> That's it, was crazy. it was amazing. So things like that would happen yeah. where I'm just... There know, it is. Yeah, it's just coming out of me, just like you said. Is there another book in there? Uh, a part I'm, two? I'm working on stories. I'm not willing to say it's a book yet. Uh, okay. But I've got, you know, probably eight or nine that I've written. And I just love writing them. And these are this book. I don't think we stated earlier. It's biographical stories oh, yeah. from your life. Yes. Yeah. It's not in chronological order or anything. It's just, just a musings of, of Peter Nielsen down on the page. Yeah. It's mostly you know the things that have made me. I feel like who I am. Mm -hmm. One of the things you talk about a lot about your career because that was a big. That's who you identified as your entire adult life and and how you really found meaning for a lot of years was through work you were a banker and you gave loans and yep. i'm simplifying this all by the way mm -hmm. but when the banking institutions went downhill in was it 2008 
Uh-huh. I think 2008, so. no. you lost I, your job. I try not to remember. I know, yeah, right? I know. And, <laughs> oh I, and when I'm reading your book, honestly, I was thinking about 2008 because during that time in our business, it was rough. It was rough. Oh, I yeah. mean, all of us. Just anxiety. It was all of us <laughs> were struggling because it's a domino effect. Yeah. And so when you look at these banking institutions and all the regulations and the things that need to happen, most of us don't understand it until it affects us. And it only affects us when crap goes downhill and it's real it's a real problem and it and it basically you lost your job in looking for a job you started working for the fdic which is what you just mentioned yeah it was hard for a couple of reasons what i did um was well they i did a bunch of things i was what they call an asset manager which is once a bank fails you have to dissolve the assets of the bank somehow Mm -hmm. and that's way oversimplifying right the other thing I did is I would be on what they call closing teams, which is on a Friday afternoon, always, unless there's an emergency, always on a Friday, they would send a person from the FDIC to every branch of a bank that was closing. Oh. Now, nobody at the bank knew it was closing. Mm-hmm. And your job was to go in just before they closed, 10 minutes before five, you'd walk into the branch and you'd say, may I speak to the branch manager? And they would say, can I tell her who's or him? who's here to see them and you'd show them your badge and they would go oh kind of because they knew what was because they knew it's five o'clock on a friday that something's gone bad weekly we had yes i literally i was out of town every weekend Mm -hmm. for all over the united states different banks usually they were small banks yeah and people were very upset that the giant banks weren't closing but and i can't i'm not speaking for the fdic here Mm -hmm. but it would have i think it would have been impossible to close we didn't have enough employees to go to every branch of some of these huge banks. Anyway. There, there was a movie, George Clooney. Yeah. that And that was sort of what it was. They don't think he was banking, but he would show up and that's, so that's what you, Well, I, I can't imagine. There were a lot of different ways they could close a bank. Sometimes yeah. they could say, sometimes you would go in and you'd say, um, I'm sorry to announce, you'd get all the employees there. I'm sorry mm-hmm. to announce that your bank failed today at 5 p.m. You'd have to wait until you got notice on your BlackBerry from Washington, D.C., we also sold it immediately, and mm. you're now all employees of the new oh, bank. Oh, I see. So that wasn't as bad. That was softer. Sure. Or we would say, um, you know, nobody wanted to buy your bank. We didn't say it like this, but <laughs> nobody wanted to buy your bank, so we're closing it, and, you know, you can work for us, the FDIC, for the next five or six days, and if you need to go to a job interview or anything, we're happy to send you. You just let us know you're going to go, and that's fine, And but we understand there's nothing we can do. The hard thing was a lot of people thought the FDIC was taking the bank's money. But oh. the truth is the bank's money was already gone. Oh, the FDIC yeah. is just an insurance company. Right, right. Yeah. So the FDIC comes in and says, okay, who had, they may have $250,000 or less, or if they, if they had more than that, we'll give you $250,000 from right. a completely different pot of money. Yeah. So it was stressful on those on those weekends because sure. we'd go in and we'd work literally nonstop. We'd go home and sleep for, not home, we'd go to some hotel somewhere and sleep for five or six hours and come back in the morning and get right back to it and, you know, try to learn all you can about the bank, especially if we're selling it to another bank because they're going to open on Monday and you closed them on Friday. Wow. And you have to have it all 
switched around. So, so comp was- in our brains as consumers, we have to simplify it because that's how you sort of explain it to the masses. And then just hearing you, I know, I know nothing about banking or the banks or how that whole thing works, but I just do remember as we all do 2008 being super stressful. And of course it's so comforting to be able to point a finger at a group of people and go, they're the problem. This is why, but it gets so much more complicated than that. Do you have any positive memories from those experiences? I do. Yeah, I have, I have, uh, well, here's a good one. I remember being in, it's kind of positive and negative, but you know, you, you work side by side with these employees that have sometimes worked at the bank forever. Yeah, decades. Yeah, we yes. we closed a bank one time that opened during the Civil War. I don't remember the name of the bank, but it was okay. in Georgia somewhere. Okay. And the woman there, um, her name was Peach. And we, you know, you, you, basically I'm in a room with her going over all the loans because I want to make sure that, you know, because eventually we we're going to sell the loans to another bank. This bank just failed. And I'm with Peach. And as I'm doing this, I'm getting to know Peach's story because it's just me and her in this little room yeah. for like the whole weekend. And I got to have this wonderful relationship with Peach. The thing that you understand about banking, which I don't think a lot of people know, is like I would say to Peach, I'd pull up a file and I'd say, oh, I don't remember the guy's name, but some Civil War sounding name. Sure. And I'd go, oh, Jedediah something. Beauregard. <laughs> Jed- <laughs> Thank you. Jedediah Beauregard. I'd say... <laughs> That's a very unusual name. I'm kind of chuckling because I'm from California, never hear a name like that. She goes, oh, poor Jedediah. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's, well, he had to, his wife got cancer and he had to drive her every day, you know, to the hospital and kind of lost track of his loan payments. And then the bank had to foreclose and he had to sell his house and his truck and then his wife died and you know and and i'm like oh oh my gosh what i don't even and i remember saying to her peach do you know everybody in all of these thousands of loan files same as you know jedediah she said yes sir i do is so jedediah was not an old-timey civil war veteran he no, was a modern was day a person yeah he was oh, a guy he, he was a man who had probably a family name handed down to him probably yeah at the beginning of your experience with the fdic you met a woman who was training you i believe yeah she was at the she was an fdic employee and i didn't I, this was the first bank closing i'd ever been on we went into this big giant conference room and they give you the exactly how the closing is going to go down and who's going to go in first. And they're extremely organized Mm. and they really know what they're doing. It it was one of the most professional places I've ever worked. Mm. And I've worked for some big banks. Anyway, um, I went through this whole meeting and I'm just sitting there with my mouth open like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I don't know. How did I get this job? Yeah. You know, right. (laughs) What am I getting myself into? Yeah. Yeah. What have I gotten myself into? And, and as I'm leaving the conference room in the hotel, this other woman walks up to me and she goes, are you Peter? And I said, yeah. She said, my name is, and I'm so sorry, but I can't remember her name right now. Sure. And she said, you're working for me. We're, we're in assets. We're the best team. So you're lucky. <laughs> and I'm all okay. And she was sort of tough. And, you know, I felt, I felt like if I crossed her, she might punch me in the nose a sure. little bit. Sure. And uh, she said, um, the only thing you have to remember at this closing, Peter, is that it's about them it's all about them it's not about us it's not about 
anything. If there's a seat that's available when the dinner comes, because we brought in dinner on the first night, there's a seat that's available. I better not see you sitting down in it if there's an employee of the bank that's still standing. She said, and you always give them a chance to call their family and tell them what's going on. And she just went on and on with a list of these are the things you have to do. And you have to remember, these people have worked here a long time. This is extremely disruptive to their lives so you have to be careful you have to be a gentleman Mm. can you do that and i'm like "Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-huh this was your first time first time yeah and i remember that every single time i went everywhere did she work for the fdic yeah she's okay so she was but she was she might still be Mm. i love that about her i love that because you go on to talk about some of the experiences where you'd go out after dinner and men and women would be having drinks and just chuckling it up and kind of making light of the fact that they just took livelihood away from everybody. In your book, you said something about it. And I want to just quote it because I think it's wonderful. It says, I had too many experiences in my life that made it so that even if I hadn't had wanted to, I couldn't separate my feelings from the things I was asked to do at work. I've always related to the little guy, the common man. And then you go on to say this, since this experience, I've realized that when people talk to me about how much money they make, I, I'm never impressed by it. I don't spend time pondering the CEO's struggle. However, I have spent lots of time thinking about Peach and wondering if she ever landed on her feet. Yep, that's true. I still wonder. I'm pretty sure she did. but She sounds like a woman who probably did. Yeah, yeah. But Peach wasn't the same woman as the... Right, yeah. right. Right. But it, it just goes on to the this woman from the FDIC was was in tune enough and understood human nature enough and cared about people enough to make that part of her practice. Yeah, and I think that came from the top of the FDIC too. There was a real push. Look, we are not just going in and closing banks. We're not the cold, the man. We're not right. the man. We are coming in and we are trying to help people. Mm. And they really did. They really... They really did. I lo- it was my favorite job I've ever had. I was going to ask that it, was that is that a memorable oh, yeah. job because of how much you learned or with the people you met? Well, it was partly that it was so surprising. I remember the first day I got the job, I'm walking out of, the, of our house and I said, Kathy, I don't know if this is going to be like working for the DMV. Oh, because it's a bureaucracy, right? Oh, yeah. I would have thought that. So, I, But I got to go. I got I got a job. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was like, yes, you need to go. <laughs> right. So I went to the... You know, I went down to the office and started figuring it out, and and it turned out to be not that at all. It was the opposite of that. I I really valued that job, and they gave me a lot of responsibility, and uh, it just I really felt I really felt like I was doing something important, like I was helping. I doing my little teeny part yep. to solve the financial crisis. It is so fascinating once you sort of pull back the curtain because the. You, your point is exact. The FDIC is a gigantic machine that we hear about, but we don't ever see what's actually going on. And to have you say that they were the they were the height of professionalism, they were the height of caring for the people. They they did they taught you all the things that you didn't you know you could have never learned anywhere else. It's like that, that's the last thing you expect. They really taught me a lot of the things I wished the bank had taught me. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And I'm not saying banks are unprofessional. No, I'm just saying the intense training that was it's about the people i would have never gone to work for the fdic right um i would have never written a book i would have uh, these are all things that i thought in fact as i'm publishing the book 
people are asking me, are you doing a book? Well, it's not a book. Mm. You know? You're downplaying <laughs> You're downplaying it. Yeah, because it. I, I just, it was too, the whole process, everything I've done, in each of those cases, I feel like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to take a needle and stick it in and out of the quilt, and how <laughs> am I going to learn how to do that? Yeah. This is a different kind of vulnerability, though. When you become an author, I mean, even Anne and I can relate to this a little bit through this podcast, yeah. because as soon as we told people we were doing the podcast, they became very critical, <laughs> right? And they became very like, why? What are you, what are you guys going to talk about? What That doesn't sound that interesting. You know, that kind of thing, because you're really putting yourself out there. I can tell you that when I published the book, the night after I published it, I said to Kathy, Kathy, I feel like like I'm naked. Yeah. Like all yeah. of a sudden everybody knows what I'm thinking. And That's right. before I could just sit back and kind of be quiet and let the crowd talk about whatever they wanted to talk about. But now it's out there. Yeah, know? everybody and, knows. And these experiences and the way people interpret what I write, you know, it might not be what I meant or I don't, you know. Intention is different from, you know, what, yeah, what they... Yeah, I mean, I tried to write it respectfully. I really wrote the book to my father who's not mm -hmm. a member of the church. So there's a lot of things in here where I explain, you know, different things that as I'm talking, I realize, oh, my dad's not going to understand that. You know, if I, yeah. if I use church lingo or whatever. Um, but I, I really, I really felt, you know, I really felt that. Is your dad still living? Yeah, he's 92 years old. He lives over in Irvine. Talk a little bit about some of the influences you've had that have gotten you to the place you're at right now. <clears throat> well, I mean, you know, there is my dad mm -hmm. who um, was a very successful um, very visible businessman in Orange County for a long time. Worked for the Irvine Company. He did. And, um, you know, he was in the newspaper all the time and all those kinds of things. And um, he was also very fair, always honest. In fact, I would say he's the most honest person I've ever met. And I've met a lot of people mm -hmm. in and out of the church. And I would say my dad is... He's just sometimes brutally honest, you know, <laughs> um, and very caring. Um, doesn't always show it real, and that's the generation, didn't always comfortable showing it. But when it came down to it, I always knew my dad was there and I could bounce things off him or talk to him. Or even if I was going to explain something where I'd made a big mistake and he would listen and he'd say, well, that was a big mistake, Peter. You know, And then he'd. <laughs> tell me don't worry about it or he'd tell me worry about it or whatever um so my dad was great my dad um uh graduated from university of washington he grew up in fullerton hmm. and they put him on a train sent him to seattle where he found a place to live and then graduated with a civil engineering degree from university of washington joined the naval civil engineering corps and went out and rebuilt runways after World War II in somewhere in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. And then came home and on the GI Bill went to the Stanford Business School and got an MBA. Yes. Then he got a CPA. So he's a civil wow. engineer, MBA, CPA, Phi Beta Kappa, Ugh. magna cum laude from Stanford. Talk about a Business renaissance School. man. Yeah. He, My goodness. He, was, <laughs> he is truly a genius with numbers. Mm. I mean, you could ask him anything. Dad, what's 14 times... 760,000. Mm He'd -hmm. go mm -hmm. and tell you the answer. No way. Just <laughs> I, like you and I. I'm probably yeah, exaggerating no a little bit on that one. But, yeah. but he just, he in finance, he just saw it. He just. He understood he, it. He, I learned one time that he took an accounting class in 
at Stanford Business School and never missed a problem the whole year. Oh. And I said, Dad, how in the, I said, by the way, this is not translating to the next generation. But, <laughs> <laughs> but how did you do that? And he goes, I don't know. I just saw it. I just could see it. Oh, I love that. I just knew how it worked. Wow. So that's my dad. That's cool. My mom, where my dad was very serious and businesslike and working, he was a very hard worker. My mom was spontaneity. My mm. mom was just a crack up. Nice. She was. She just made everyone laugh. She was a social person. She had a little group of friends that were kind of the outcasts, you know, that yes. others didn't, for some reason, weren't in the group. She just, yes. we had parties with all these people at our house all the time. And I remember one funny story. I don't know if this will make the cut. <laughs> it probably <laughs> but, will. <laughs> but I remember um, I'm leaving. I'm leaving to go to high school. So I'm getting in my old Chevy station wagon that used to be in my grandfather's that barely worked. <laughs> and I'm trying to start it up. And I look over and my dad is coming out to work. He's got his tie on and he's going out to do whatever. I think he worked for a land developer at the time. And this is down in San Diego. And... My mom is chasing him out the door, and she has curlers in her hair and her bathrobe on. She's, don't leave me, Tom. Don't leave me. And he's like, I, I'm going to work. I'm going to work. And he gets in the car, and she jumps on the hood. Yes. And she's, Tom, please don't leave me. And he's, like, putting it in gear. He's like, I, I'm out of here, you know. And, and then my mom jumps off, and she just looks at me like, I don't know, sometimes, you know. He, I just want him to stay. He loved it. He loved it. He loved he it. He did. Yes. Another time we had a pool in the backyard and another time um, they were having a party. I wasn't at this party. My mom told me about it. But my uncle Mark, who was pretty shy, mm -hmm. he's now in his 30s and he had come to visit us for the summer and somehow they're having a big party with I don't know how many people, but they were all in the backyard having their conversations and stuff. And Mark showed up. Drove up and came around the backside, and he didn't know that. I don't think he knew there was a party, and he was kind of amazed, and he slipped and fell in the pool with all his clothes on. <laughs> and so he was just mortified, yes. my mom said. She saw him. So she's wearing all her clothes, so she jumps in the pool too. And she tells my dad, and my dad jumps in the pool. Pretty soon, everybody jumped in the pool Aww. with all their clothes on. <laughs> Is Mark your mom's brother? Yeah. So yeah. she knew how how yeah. horrible he how yes. embarrassing that was for him. Yeah. Yeah. Is your mom still living? No, she passed away about ten years, eight, nine years ago. What a lovely yes. I don't. I mean, I clearly I don't know her, but just that story alone is like how heartfelt. She was. She She's was very so lovely. She was where my dad was. The numbers. She was just warmth. I, I feel like I had great parents. I feel like my dad taught my my dad had a sort of sneaky warmth. It was like. Because he was a businessman, he sure. had to be, and it was a different generation back yeah. then. But he was he was warm to me, mm -hmm. and I always felt like if I had an issue, I could go to him. And you never you know. doubted that he loved you. There no, was I no never question. did. I never did. And I never doubted my mom did. She was just because she was so outward about oh, it. Oh, Peter, you're so cute and so <laughs> fun. And, you know, <laughs> like, and she'd jump on the hood of a car in a yeah. bathrobe. If there was for ever a day, like if I was in college, mom, I don't know. You know, the girls don't like me or something. Yeah, yeah. She'd be like, they're nuts. They're, you know. <laughs> have you seen yourself? You're right, amazing. Exactly. I love it. Calm down, Peter. Yeah. Did you, did you get any sleep last night? <laughs> you need know. protein. Well, go take a nap and you'll feel better. <laughs> How did you meet your wife, Kathy? Um, my uh, family lived in San Diego. Her parents were divorced and her father moved to San Diego. And um, her, she had three sisters. 
her little sister, Leslie, and her stayed with her mom in Los Angeles. And the other two moved to San Diego with the dad. And so I knew the other two. The one of my age, uh, her name's Jerilee. And I knew her. She was in my same grade. At, I think I was 16. She was probably 16. She was nice and fun and stuff. And then we did a family get-together with the two families in the park one day. And Kathy's dad was a PhD. He got his PhD from Stanford in civil rights. Mm-hmm. So he came and spoke about civil rights. We, we did a little family get-together. He was going to talk about civil rights. And we all got there. And this was back in the day when blacks couldn't hold the priesthood in the Mormon church. Mm. And I was really conflicted about it. It was the only conflict I had. And it's like, well, I, don't, I just didn't understand it. So he gave this whole thing. And at the end, I remember this girl. She was, I think, 14 at the time. <laughs> she, um, he said, are there any questions? He gave a whole historic thing about it. And she said, I have a question. And he said, yeah. And she goes, if you were black, and the missionaries came to your door, would you join the church? Oof. And I thought, man, who asks that question? That's uh-huh. a, that's a, a very t- smart She woman. did it very sweetly, too, you know. And I can't even remember his answer because I remember looking at her going, who is that girl? You know, and she had, you know, long hair and curly. And I just remember thinking. And then a little while later, I remember um, we went to an activity at the church where they taught us how to swing dance. Mm-hmm. And I, um, you know, we, they were, okay, now switch partners and you know, <laughs> switch partners with another girl. And, and I remember dancing with Kathy. She, again, she's like maybe 15 now and I'm probably 17. And, and she was good. Mm-hmm. She, was, she could do it and, you know, made it easier for me to do it too. I didn't really know what I was doing. And so we danced a little bit and we figured that out. And it was really fun. You know, it's, when you can really swing dance, it's really fun. Yeah. And... Um, they said, um, okay, you know, that's it. Like, that was it. I'm like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> and also, are there any swing dances around? No, you know, I, okay, well, thanks for teaching us. And I went to high school. She was still in junior high. She uh-huh. was 15. Yeah. And there was a sign up on the wall that said 50s dance contest. This is like the next Tuesday or something. And I went, huh, a 50s dance contest. I wonder if swing dancing is like 50s dancing. Yeah. And I... You know, so I figured out that it was, and I called Kathy and said, hey, do you want to compete with me in the swing dance contest at school, at the high school? And she said, well, I'm only 15, so you'll have to talk to my dad. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to win a contest. Because in my family, also, my dad was not a member. My mom, we didn't have roles Those like roles. that. Yeah. So, but I was like, okay, I'll talk to him. Because I did. I wanted to, and I, you know, I secretly wanted to go out with Kathy and I um wasn't much of a secret but mm-hmm. um so I said well we got to get the other and practice and there was another couple I knew from school that they saw us practicing and they came up so can you teach us how to do that you know so we did and his, I remember his name was Peter Archidiacono yes the, and Cindy Musello two Italians <laughs> and they were they, they we would get together after school for a couple of days and practice the swing dancing and yeah. it was usually beach boys music sure and, Anyway, we went to the contest and we won the contest. Kathy and I won the 50 dance contest. So her what? dad said, yes, you could do her this. Dad, oh my gosh, yes. And it was high pressure. He's a, you know, he can do the yeah. PhD. So he gave you the, the rundown. He did give me the rundown. And then when it was all, the interview was all over, he said something like, looked at me like, 
with his glasses on the end of his nose, mm. you know, over his glasses, and said, "Well, it's really up to Kathy." So. Oh. <laughs> and then I went to Kathy. And she goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." Well, <laughs> of course, okay. yeah, yeah. So yeah. we won the fifties dance contest, and then, you know, from then on, I I don't think we got really serious in high school because. We, you know, I knew I was going on a mission. And, yeah. And then uh, we were pretty serious. So I invited her. I spoke at my high school graduation. and I invited Kathy to come and sit with my family. That was cool. And then uh, when I was set apart as a missionary, she was there. Oh, okay. And then I went on my mission. And uh, she wrote to you. She wrote to me. She was dating other boys, and that was fine. Um, I wrote to her. Probably more than she wrote to me. Sure. sure. <laughs> Let's be real. Are we yeah. gonna be, we're going to be truthful. This is like right, the truthful right. seat. Mm-hmm. Right. And then uh, it's a funny story. She, before I came home, about a month before I came home, she did study abroad in Spain. Mm-hmm. So she was six months in Madrid, mm-hmm. which gave me five months to become kind of normal again. Right. Which I thought was fantastic. Right. But a funny story, um, when she was in Madrid... Her director, the director of the program, um, was, you know, he had like, I don't know how many, say eight or 10 young girls, college age, that he was supposed to be keeping an eye on and keeping, you know, making sure they were safe and all this stuff. How was that going? It was going well. Okay. (laughs) But he was saying, he was always saying, now girls, don't marry young. You don't Mm -hmm. don't have to, you really have your lives ahead of you. You know, he's he's a great guy. I yeah. know him. He's become a family friend. And so he was on and on with this. Don't get attached young. You know, don't worry about it. BYU. There's a lot of pressure to get married. Just calm down. I like him. You know? Yeah. Yes. And so um, Kathy decides to pull kind of a prank on him. And she goes down to the store somewhere in Madrid and buys a little costume <laughs> and ring and comes in. She goes, oh, Dr. Lion. That was his name. Dr. Lion. So exciting. I'm engaged. And he kind of what you know and yeah a missionary wrote me a letter and said would you marry me when i get home and you know she and i'm so excited and she's just going and he's like sitting there kind of trying to decide well if she's getting married i kind of got to get on board you know or uh, i mean i'm just a director i'm not right. a dad yeah you know? yeah uh and if but if she wants my advice i'm gonna tell her to cool her jets you know mm-hmm. and, and she's going on and on and he's you know she's just stringing him along and He's like, well, okay, well, tell me about him. What's what's his name? And she goes, I had not thought of of this and part of the thing. And she goes, I said, well, his name is Peter Nielsen. No, <laughs> she just. I wish I had known this yeah, at the no time. Kidding. Right? No kidding. <laughs> and then, uh, so she, you know, she had in finally, the back of her mind. She... Finally, she tells the guy, you know, it wasn't me. Then later on, I come home. We start dating, get engaged. She goes, we got to go meet Doctor Lyon because now he lives in Provo. <laughs> So we go over there, she goes, Dr. Lyon, this is my fiance, Peter Nielsen. And he goes, I'm not falling for that the second time. <laughs> this is true this time. <laughs> yeah. She goes, no, it's really him. I go, it is me. It's really me. Oh. So anyway, long story, but. I love it. How long have you guys been married? 40. We were married in 1980. So what is that? 43 years? You're, 43 the, years? you're the finance guy. <laughs> give, it, give us those numbers. 1980, July of 1980. So 43 years. You yeah. just celebrated in July. Yeah. It'll be 44 next. Going on 50. It's going to be very exciting. It's, it's very, very, exciting. very exciting. I don't know what we're going to do, but it'll be something big probably. It'll be great. In In the book, you talk about how it's hard to, you, you wanted to write about Kathy, but it's hard. It is. And it says, you said this, I feel like I'm getting close to something inside me that is tender or vulnerable. 
I've always felt that she saved me from what would have been a mediocre life. Yeah, I do. Kathy's instinct, if there's a challenge in front of her, is to run toward it. Yeah. My instinct is always, okay, let me take a look at this for like the next five days and then I'll decide. And she's always, no, Peter, do it, do it, go. You know, like this book. I had written the book. I had all the stories. I sent it to the publisher. He said, yeah, let's, it's a go. Let's do it. I said, okay. He said, all I need is a biography and I need the, I don't know what you call it, the, the summary. Or, oh, yeah. You know, also on the back, on the page, back jacket. Sure. You can pick it up and read what the book's about. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he said, those are the only two things I really need, uh, Peter. Can you put those together and then we'll do it? I said, okay. And I was at the doctor's office with Kathy doing this. And mm-hmm. she walks out of the doctor's office and said, and with the doctor, and they said, Kathy has breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, and she said, we have to take her back and do some more tests or something. I said, okay. So then I called the publisher on the phone and I said, I'm the, we can't, I can't focus on that right now. I got a big crisis going. My wife has cancer. You know, we, I, we just have to put it off. And he said, I totally understand. My wife went through the same thing. Everything is, everything's okay. Don't worry about it. I said, okay, Kathy comes back out. And I said, don't worry. I'm thinking I'm being the great husband. Kathy, don't worry. I'm totally focused on this. I've canceled the thing with the book. And she goes, well, you're going to have to call the guy back because you have worked too hard on this book. You need to figure out a way to get those things written and get it published. Mm. Perfect example of her just, and I said, okay, well, I don't, I can't focus on writing the, the last thing he said, which is what's on the back of the book. And he said, and she said, call your brother. My brother was a reporter for National Public Radio and he's an English major from Stanford. John, I need this and I need the biography. Can you write them? Yep. Okay. You wrote them. I read them and went. They're great. they're better Perfect. than the whole book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if only he could have written the rest <laughs> right, of it. <laughs> right. So I said, uh, okay, and I sent them to the guy, and next thing I know, there we are. So, I love but it's that. a perfect example of Kathy kind of saying, mm. "You do it, Peter. You, you know." And with the other things I was doing, like when I started quilting, I go, Kathy, is this weird that I'm quilting? <laughs> She's like, "No, do it. Go get artistic. Figure out." a way you can make one that other people wouldn't make, you know, and yeah. come up with a design and, I, you know. Yeah. And lately I've been doing watercoloring and stuff. So what's the painting? What are, you, so, what are we painting? Uh, right now, if my grandkids are listening to this, they need to... Turn it off. Turn it off for, and for like 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm working on a book of the parables of Jesus in watercolor with my own take on them. Love it. So I do like the... You know the. I just, I've just gone through the. You know, there's and they're not all parables. Some of them are like consider the lilies of the field. Sure. So I painted some lilies, or there's um, the prodigal son, and you know just, or there's um, uh, the, um, the guy who went in, Daniel on the lion's den, mm-hmm. which isn't of Jesus. That's an Old Testament story, but I painted that one out and then I thought oh I'm going to put because there's a bunch of songs about that yes. so I have one from I have a little guy singing from uh, um, Fiddler on the Roof yeah. there's a song about <laughs> yep. Daniel and Lionson there's one by Bruce Springsteen so I have a little painting of Bruce Springsteen singing something about Daniel and what? Lionson. so this and is the, like a this picture is all on the page it's this one page okay okay and then I have Daniel sitting with these lions like they're all buddies <laughs> <laughs> and it's for my grandkids so it's you know it's fun are you going to publish it? 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to my grandkids first. You're gonna, this is the same way I was with this book. You're, gonna, you're going to make <laughs> copies of it so that they each yeah, can I'm have gonna, one. Yeah, yes. How did you learn how to paint? I picked up a paintbrush and started painting. Yeah, yeah. So you didn't take a class. You didn't YouTube that, or did you? No. Well, no. really, I have always drawn. Oh, okay. I've always sort of cartoony type of drawn. And I did that because in junior high, I got sent to detention one time. And, <laughs> and there was a book on cartooning sitting in front of me in the library where I was in detention. So mm -hmm. I picked it up and started drawing little things. And I've always drawn in church. If it, mm. Of course, it never does this. But if it ever got boring, <laughs> then I would start to draw the guy who was speaking. Nice. I have a funny story about that. I one time was drawing this story and there was a young woman sitting in front of me and she was probably 12. And so I showed her the picture and she went, oh, because she could recognize that it was the speaker. speaker. She went, oh. So then I did the next speaker came up and I drew him and showed her. And, she goes, oh. and then I handed her the piece of paper and the pencil. So she drew someone and then I drew someone. Then she did. And then her mom caught look, <laughs> mm -hmm. and picked up the paper and wrote on it, you are way too old to be drawing pictures in church. I gave it to her. And she takes it and goes like this yeah. and gives it to me. Oh. And I'm like, oh, I guess I probably am too old. Never. <laughs> never too old to be drawing and doodling. I know that wasn't, I wasn't the mother that did no, that. No, I don't think you were. I know it wasn't me because that would not be my philosophy. I have no comment on who the mother was. Okay, good. Is there a favorite yeah. parable? Is there a favorite story that you love to draw? Yeah, my favorite one, my favorite parable is the story of the Good Samaritan. Yeah. And it's the first one I drew and painted. And it's the story of the little guy leaving Jerusalem and walking and falling among thieves. And it sort of follows him down the path. And then he lays there almost dead and the priest comes by and, you know, then finally the Samaritan comes by and he puts him on a donkey. And it was hard because I had to figure out, God, I don't know how to draw a donkey. <laughs> yeah. So I had to look, look up pictures of donkeys and how do I draw a donkey with a guy on its back that's half dead? Oh. You know, so then I get down and you know, and so I, that was my favorite one that I drew. And I love the message of it, too, yes. which is yes. go thou and do likewise. That's right. So yeah. I love that. Yeah. I told my son, Chance, that I was and you were you you and your wife both have been a big influence in our kids lives. I mean, we raised our kids together. And, well, we love your kids. Uh, thank you. And Mitchell specifically and Jeffrey have had a great bond and he's been a, a, a source of of strength for Mitchell recently, especially. But um one of the things I was telling Chance, yeah, we're going to be interviewing Peter Nielsen. He's like, oh, my gosh, he's so fun. And I said, I know, isn't he? And I go, he wrote this book. And he goes, I hope he's going to tell you the story of his mission story. He goes, every time I think about him, all I can think about is the milk story from Guatemala. I was teaching the 12-year-olds or 11-year-old boys. They were, there was like 10 of them in the room. <laughs> we had a big group of boys yeah, at that time. and it was time. quite unruly, so you had to fight for their attention and... And I remember saying something like, so what's the grossest thing you've ever eaten? <laughs> mm -mm. And they all kind of looked at me like, I don't know, you know, and a Twinkie or, a, you know, I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> probably never eaten anything gross. Or I don't know, but they didn't know what to say. And I said, let me tell you about the grossest thing I ever ate. And they said, okay, I can't believe you're going to tell this story. <laughs> so I said, um, I was in Guatemala and I had heartburn and, you know, it was a super hot day and I was just like, oh, what am I? And I, I remember talking to the mission president, and I complained that I sometimes had heartburn. And he said, well, you need to drink some milk when you have heartburn. So I said, okay. So in Guatemala, a lot of the houses downstairs have these little tiendas, which are just, they open up the front door, and they have a little 
counter and they'll sell you a little gum or oh. little things. And it's a way they can supplement their very low income. And I remember walking up to one of them and we used to buy drinks there and water, or, you know, stuff. And I remember going into one and I said, this is all in Spanish. I said, do you have any milk? And he went, milk? I said, yeah, do you have any milk? And then all of a sudden he goes, oh, yes, yes, I do have some milk. Just a minute, let me let me get some milk. Mm-hmm. I go, okay. So I'm sitting there and waiting, and he goes in the behind. Like, I don't know where he went, but he was gone for like 10 minutes. Oh, no. He, he comes back. No, no. I think he probably did, or a goat, or something, <laughs> I don't know. Comes back with this warm glass, oh. puts it on the table, and he's like, there it is. And he's so proud, and he went to all this work, I have to pay him and he's watching me and so I pick it up and I'm and I like halfway through and there is a glob like the size of a ping pong ball that goes in my mouth and I'm like <laughs> just sitting there like I don't know what to do here I, I can't spit it out because the guy really I feel like he did me a favor to get me the milk uh-huh. glob okay so I I just no. I just Swallowed it and kind of oh. choked it down and oh. gink. And I'm like, thank you so much for the, <laughs> for the milk. I've got to go. And that that's the milk story that I told what? him when he was 12. So how long ago was that? Well, chance is 30. Okay. So what was the glob? No you one still... will ever know. No. <laughs> we don't know what the glob is. But the, the point I feel like oh. in the story was, honestly, for chance to remember that, first of all. <laughs> now... Again, it really wasn't about the fact that there was a glob of milk because that's what kept the story. Who knew if it was even milk? Yeah, exactly. It was warm and it was kind of white. Yeah, it was. It was was gross for sure. The boys remember it because, number one, you told it and you're a storyteller and you kept their attention. You had to fight for it, but you could keep it, right? They (laughs) loved coming to church. They were good kids. And we would, every single Sunday, our tradition around our family was tell us something that you learned in church. Mm-hmm. And of course, we would hear the Peter Nielsen stories, which were the best. Mm-hmm. And before that, just so you know, those stories would be, tell us something that you learned and everyone would have a blank stare on their face and say nothing. They'd literally go, nothing. That's but fine. usually with Peter Nielsen, we always got the stories. But I love the fact that the influence that you had, the story had so much layered meaning. You were kind enough to be conscious of this boy's effort to you. Yeah. And you didn't want to hurt his feelings, right. right? That was one of the truths that you told them. You also talked to them about be doing hard things, yeah, which you've done over and over again in your life. I felt like the first point, I felt like that was true of everyone in Guatemala. I felt like they had a life that was harder than mine. And you knew it. I mean, it was no question. I, I one time for a period of two months, one of the only member of the church in the town I worked in was also the midwife to the Indian people. Oh so I would go with her out to, and she'd break, set broken bones, Ugh. and she'd, you know, rub stuff into mm-hmm. sores. And I don't even know if this is medicine or not. I don't know what she's, she, or she would ask me to massage somebody's arm, and I'd be doing it. She'd come back and shove me away and do it harder. Or, you know, I, it was just an amazing, amazing experience. I, you know, I grew up in La Jolla, California. That's where I went to high school. One of the most beautiful places in the world. I thought 
every place in the world was Look, like La Jolla. <laughs> I wish it was. Because that's, that's, where where that's all I knew, you yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then I found myself in the middle of a National Geographic magazine sure. in Guatemala w- with malnutrition and, you know, people that couldn't read. No. You know, and I mean... Poverty. One of the... If we asked somebody, if we wanted to teach them the discussions, we had to find out if they could read first. Yeah. So we would, we would always ask them, do you enjoy reading? Not, can you read? Yeah. Because they would say, oh, no, I don't enjoy it very much. Oh, okay. Usually that meant I don't know how. I don't know how. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it was right before the beginning of the whole sort of civil unrest that went on in Central America. I was there right at the very beginning. I didn't see any bullets flying or anything, but yeah. you could tell it was tension packed. Mm-hmm. So it was that, that was part of my, when I say my mission was beautiful, challenging, difficult, it was because those things always have always hit me and I didn't know how to process them. And at the same time, you know, I've developed some beautiful relationships with that I still have with people that live in Guatemala and they still live in Guatemala. So it was it was difficult partly because of this sensitivity I'm wired with. So before we leave, we have a tradition when we have a guest on and we ask that guest to bring us uh give us a takeaway gift something that we can remember you by i mean you've given us a lot of information mm-hmm. already that we could definitely glean and probably cut and paste into something hopefully but i know that you have <laughs> other things what what did you bring to us today well i have two little sayings that are kind of famous in my family okay the first one is begin the rest is easy oh. mm-hmm. so Love. and it's usually the beginning part that we're the most awkward at most that we hate the most because it's just kind of gross. We don't know how to quilt. We don't know how to write. We don't know, you know, and I've expressed today, I told that story about, I don't know how to write. You know what I mean? And if you begin and you stick with it, you can do it. You know, that's, that's the first one. I love that. The second one that we always have said in my family, I actually, we said it, I think there, I don't know if you remember the fires that blew down to Laguna Beach. Yep. Mm -hmm probably 20 something years ago and burned down like 300 homes. And you could see the flames from my girl's bedroom Mm -mm. and they were just little at the time. And they came down the next morning. We were eating our Cheerios, getting ready for breakfast or for school. And um, they clearly looked a little bit scared. Sure. And they said something like, "Um, dad, what, I mean, what can we do? Yeah. And I said, without even thinking about it, I said, there's always something you can do. Mm. And they were like, what? And I said, always. There's always something you can do. It may not be big. There's always something in every situation. There's always something you can do. So then Sarah, my second daughter, shouts out, can we make cookies and take them to the fireman? Oh, yeah. I said, yeah, we can. So we made cookies and, you know. Spent the day, I don't know if it was a Saturday or how, somehow we made these cookies and I drove them down to the fire station and I remember sitting in the car going, you guys, go ahead, you did it. You yeah, know, yeah. The three of them walk up. Jeff was probably, I don't know, eight. Little. And knock on the door and this big fireman with his fireman outfit opens the door and they made a sign. I'm going to get choked up. There's a sign they made that said, thank you for saving our town. Mm-hmm. And they handed the thing and the guy said, oh, you know, and he got teary-eyed. I'm in the car crying because <laughs> watching <laughs> You're this. watching your kids. Yeah. And they um, turn around. They go like this. Come on, Dad. Come on. So then I got up there and 
he wants us he said can we can we climb around on the fire truck for a little while oh <laughs> and yeah so we went inside and you know and and from then on we've always you know whenever anything happens sarah will say that she's in saint george now and She'll say something terrible happened, and I just keep remembering when we always said there's always something you can do. She goes, I never know what I'm gonna do, but I always try to do something. Yeah. And I think if there's a, you know, just having gone through with Kathy or her illness, you know, and just anything, someone could come up, and squeeze my arm, and go, you know, we're we're thinking of you. Yeah. That that meant the world. Right. You know, and those kinds of just. Anything. Small acts. Small acts. They can be big acts. Anything. It's always it's always better to do something. Mm-hmm. So that's it. my take home. There's always something you can do. Thank you very much. Those are both great ones. <laughs> Love it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you, yep. Peter. We're so glad to have you on. You can see um, some photos from Peter and Kathy's life together on our Instagram page. Uh, that is um, uh, Two Average Girls Podcast on Instagram. Also, order the book. We're going to put a link to it on our Instagram, mm-hmm. but it's on um, it's on Amazon. It's called All That I've Seen by Peter Nielsen, N-I-E-L-S-E-N. Thank you so much for taking the time and being here with us. Thank you. This was fun. We loved it. We Thanks. loved it. I did too. We are Two Average Girls. I'm Ann Police. And I'm Denise Cooper. We'll see you next time. Episodes of Two Average Girls are free wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button on the Two Average Girls main page so you never have to go searching for new episodes. Our editor is Aiden Bloomstein. Our social media producer is Samantha Stone. And original music for Two Average Girls is by Jason Fries.